You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Monday, September 28th, 2009, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hey, how was everyone's Yom Kippur? It was awesome. I don't remember. This was the best Yom Kippur ever. Why? There have been 5,769 Yom Kippurs prior to the one this year. Mm-hmm. This yeah. one marks the 5,770th, and it by far blew away all the others. But Rebecca's not with us tonight. Oh, no? That's because Rebecca is now in London. No, she's on her way to London. She's no, traveling. I think she's probably there by now. She was going to go move into her digs and then branch out from there. I think she's essentially consummating her marriage right now. Right. Really? But fear not, Rebecca has full plans to remain on the show. She's not going anywhere. She's going to be recording from a different location. Yep. Although now she's going to be talking like, hello, boys. <laughs> hello, governor. <laughs> hello, SGF. How is all you skeptics? She's spelling skeptic with a C and stuff. Oh, like, oh God. God. That will be intolerable. She has said adamantly a number of times that she's going to keep the American accent because she quote unquote thinks the English people find it cute. Cute. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, but is she going to be able to really do that? You know, it's one thing to say she'll do it. And then it's another thing to immerse yourself in a whole other culture surrounded by everybody who speaks a different diet. She's too old to pick up an accent. Yeah, I think so. She's, uh, she was a lot younger. If she was in 7, 8, 9, 10, around there, I think she could do it. But now, you know, in your late 20s, there are some people that would you know, kind of want to pick up the accent, maybe kind of work at it. You mean like the Stray Cats, Bob? <laughs> the what? Remember that band from the yeah. 80s? They, yeah. they, go, they go live in England for like six months, and they're like, you know, coming back with full English accents. <laughs> and, and they sound, yeah. like, the se- yeah, they sound yeah. like the Sex Pistols or something. That's, that's more of an <laughs> affectation. <laughs> so, Evan, you know, they could, you could take the girl out of Boston, but you can't, you know. Take the Jersey girl out of Boston, <laughs> yeah. but you can't. And there's London... Uh, we'll figure it yeah, out. Yeah, it'll, it'll work its way out. So we do have a an in-memoriam this week. His name is Basava Permanand, and I hope I pronounced that decently enough. He's from India, and he's a notable rationalist and publisher of Indian Skeptic Magazine. And he's been called affectionately uh, the James Randi of India, you know, because he has knowledge of magical tricks and so forth. At the same time, he uses what he knows of magic in order to reveal the godmen of India, or people who were pretending to have these mystical and supernatural powers, and he's been famous for debunking them and calling them out as the frauds and charlatans that they are. And the most famous of those um, certainly was uh, Sai Baba. We've all heard of him, right? Mm -hmm. Who's, you know, for many, many, many decades has been convincing millions of people that he's some sort of godlike creature with uh, with superpowers. There's plenty of video and stuff of Sai Baba and him performing all these so-called miracles and it's just, it, they're all simple, relatively simple tricks, sleight of hand and so forth and Pasava Permanent is instrumental in calling him out on it and right. revealing him for what he is. Could you imagine being a stout skeptic in India? 
what, what, what difference does it make if you're a fat skeptic or not? Well, I, I actually was thinking about that myself, Jay. I mean, you know, there you are, the, the skeptic, trying to convince the masses. And we're talking over a billion people, right? So the sheer numbers, the sheer volume of people that I'm sure influenced by people like Sai Baba and these other charlatans. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Supernaturalism and belief in that, from what I understand, is very, very prominent in India. Yeah, I mean, Bob, my, my point is, as bad as we think it is in the United States, and as much woo as we have, like, literally seeping out of the seams here, I mean, India, I, I think I could build a very strong case to, to state that India has it even worse. Yeah, Jay, I was only joking. It's much more embedded in the culture. Yeah, Bob was making a joke on the word stout. Because oh. you said stout skeptic, which means I meant fat. To say, I meant to say staunch. staunch. So, yeah, <laughs> whatever. He's a big man. He's, he's, he's been suffering from cancer for... They don't they don't explain how long exactly in this article, but they say for quite some time. Carcinoma of the stomach. Oh no! Which uh, you know metastatic. Here he is, you know, in the certainly at the very end of his life. He's literally on his deathbed. Literally on his deathbed. A time when most people, the majority of people, you know, are mentally preparing themselves for the end and whatever form that takes. And for Premanand, what he what he just recently did was made a. Uh, declaration of attitude and temperament is what he called it. And here's how it reads. I'll read the first part for you. Um, I, B. Preminand, a sound of mind, though suffering from physical complications caused by metastases in many organs, caused by carcinoma of the stomach, herein solemnly wish to place on record the following. I have been closely associated with the rationalist movement from 1975 onwards and have been a rationalist of full conviction since then and continue to be so. It's common for the purveyors of superstitions and such anti-rational forces to start spreading rumors about rationalists turning to God and other supernatural forces at the end of their lives and becoming devotees of gods and godmen of various types. I wish to clarify that as on today, the 20th of September, 2009, I remain a staunch rationalist and wish to place on record the following. I continue to be a rationalist of full conviction. I do not believe in any supernatural power. All the powers that we encounter are in the realm of nature, and nothing exists beyond that. I do not believe in the existence of the soul or or rebirth. I have not turned to any religion, God, or any sort of spiritual pursuits. When I pass away, I shall be leaving my body, which is to be donated to a medical college, and no spirit or soul to cause problems for the living. So essentially, he's... This is a preemptive strike against any of the godmen who would exploit his death in order to bolster their own image or reputation by saying that he converted to accept or belief in them at the last minute. I don't recall ever reading a statement like that by someone in that position before. Which is good. So he would just yeah. kind of prevent himself and his own yeah. death from being exploited by the people that he spent his life to That's a bad idea. I, to, I wonder how to expose. I wonder how these uh these, these people will will deal with it now. I mean, how would, how will they adapt to this? Yeah, we'll see. We'll see if they yeah. have a counter move. Because you know that he's right. This always crops up. You know, there was rumors that well, like, Carl, Carl Sagan had the deathbed conversion. I mean, yeah, you know, anyone anyone famous enough that their their name is well known. Bob and Evan, do you guys remember that we met him? Holy crap! Really? Yeah, we we met him at the at uh, that World Congress in Albany that Psychop put on, like. 10 years ago, 12 years ago, he was there. He did this trick where yeah, he, his gig was to imitate the tricks of the godmen to show that right. anybody could do them. And I remember he ran around the entire audience and put like a little bit of sand in everybody's hand, apparently from his own hand. 
right? As if you were materializing it. Mm-hmm. Do you guys remember that scene, that thi- trick? Out of thin air. Yes. So how do you do it? I don't know. <laughs> Magic. <laughs> There's a YouTube footage of people oh, pretending yeah. to be uh, you know, godmen doing the exact same trick. So you can find it on YouTube. And I, remember, I remember I spoke with him briefly. He was you know, a very... Like humble, unassuming, uh, quiet man, you know. I just googled his image, and yeah, I do remember him. Yeah. So we'll be sorry to see him go. Yeah. Yeah. To me, and it's funny to think of like he, to to Indian rationalists and skeptics. You know, he is their Randy. You know, he yeah. is as big a figure to them as Randy is to us. Well, we I want to go to a few more news items uh, this evening before we go on to our interview. Uh, there's been a number of paleontological news recently. Last week we talked about Raptor X. Actually, before we go on, there's a little bit of follow-up to that. Many listeners emailed us uh, to let us know because uh, we joked about, uh, you know, the Raptor Rex is a, is, a, is a tiny T-Rex, and we joked about there being something even smaller called a Nano Rex. Mm-hmm. And so a lot, many people emailed us to let us know that there already is a Nano Tyrannus. Not a Nano Rex, <laughs> but a Nano Tyrannus. Oh, my no God. That's crap. a great name. However, awesome. the Nano Tyrannus is 17 feet long and weighed about a ton, so it was actually bigger Oops. than the, the Raptor X. Well, what? They, what's with the name? Yeah, they they well, prematurely used the Nano on not figuring yeah. they were going to find an even smaller T Rex. They yeah, should at least go a, with Micro or or Pico. Yeah. No, <laughs> well, not Pico. That'd be even smaller. Bob, at that size, how about? You know, not so friggin' large. <laughs> Angstr- Angstrom Rex. There is a Microraptor, which actually I'm going to talk about in just a second. You know, I'm no. now, I'm, now I'm starting to not like any of this micro-nano stuff hey. in regards to... Wait, wait, let me finish. Settle down. In regards to dinosaurs, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, you got to be careful, um, especially if you're going to use a superlative. You, if there's something even bigger, better, or whatever is found... Then you've, and you've used up the name, then you've got to figure something else out, right? So here, that's exactly what happened in this yeah. case. They used Nano, and then they found something smaller. So they just called it a Raptor X, you know, which doesn't really... Re- now, they're not going to change the Nano Tyran. Now, you know, once it's established, there are there is a mechanism for doing that, but no one's going to bother. Well, they can reclassify Pluto a dwarf planet, but they can't fix yeah, they're, the they're obvious really, flaw. They're really reluctant to do that because that makes the literature hard to read. Mm, yeah. You know, we have a you have a paper describing Nano Tyrannus, and then five years later, or whatever the time period has been, it's referring to a different species, and it just confuses the literature. So they really don't like changing names in the literature. Well, they changed Pluto. <laughs> yeah, let's, they still call it Pluto. They they changed its categorization. Right, or Brontosaurus. Yeah, Brontosaurus. Yes, I know. And Apatosaurus. Yeah, I think they shouldn't have done that. But that was because they had two names referring to the yes. two uh, the and one came species. earlier, right? Yeah, so the they, earlier one gets precedence. The whole renaming, which of is reasonable, species and things is a big topic unto itself, right, Steve? Yeah, taxonomy, absolutely. And now there's the big fight between the uh, I can't remember. I don't know what the specific name for it is, but sort of the classic taxonomists and the cladists. Yeah, cladistics, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but a couple of other bits of paleontological news caught my eye this week. One I blogged about, the latest oldest bird. So for uh, the last century or so, the oldest bird specimen has been Archaeopteryx. Yep. A beautiful transitional species. The Berlin specimen of Archaeopteryx is one of the most beautiful fossils that I think exists. And I've written about it before because it's such a, a wonderful transitional species. It's like as if you 
invented something <laughs> right. that was half dinosaur and half bird, that would be it, you know. Teeth, bony tail, claws, and yet it has feather, flight feathers and could fly. But it wasn't a, wasn't a good flyer. Do you remember when we interviewed uh, the ornithologist about, I think his name was Prum, Dr. Prum, who referred to... He did it in the kitchen with the the knife, you know, Steve. Yeah, that there was the... um, (laughs) Professor Prum. One of the... Professor Plum did it with the bird feather in the conservatory. (laughs) One of the... the, Provocative, Steve. (laughs) Apparent problems with the dinosaur to bird hypothesis is that... The timeline doesn't quite work. Now, it's not really a problem. We discussed this with Prum uh, because you're looking at random fossils from different time periods and because species can be stable over long periods of time, it's, certainly, it's, it's absolutely possible to find a fossil that appears later in the fossil record but that has more primitive features in that line than earlier fossils. So it's an apparent paradox but, you know, you, you make the prediction, if evolution is true, eventually, if we look enough, we should find older and older specimens. So it's just an artifact of an incomplete fossil record. Well, lo and behold, and Prum pointed out that we've been finding feathered dinosaurs, you know, earlier and earlier, sort of closer to the branching point of the different feathered dinosaur groups, resolving the paradox. Well, now, finally, we found a primitive feathered dinosaur that's older than Archaeopteryx, completely resolving the paradox. The new fossil is Anchiornis huxleyi, and it is from 151 to 161 million years ago, Archaeopteryx being about 150, so it's older, and it's more primitive. It has a very interesting feature. It has fully formed feathers on all four limbs, so it essentially has four wings. Yum! But this is not the first feathered dinosaur to be discovered with four wings. One is Microraptor, and another one is Pedopenna. So this is actually now the third feathered dinosaur with four wings. And these are all, these are all specimens from early on, and again, in the branching point of the early feathered dinosaurs, the branch that led to birds and the other very closely related branches, which kind of makes sense in that you would think early on, before wings were fully developed, if you wanted to maximize your lift, you know, you would grow feathers on your arms and legs, on all four legs or, mm-hmm. or, or, or limbs. But then once the four wings fully developed, the hind wings would become redundant and then they could be freed up to be optimized for other things like hopping or running or whatever. So that appears to be what has happened. Uh, so this is, again, a very nice fossil, further fleshing out the evolution of dinosaurs to birds, resolving this, you know, the apparent uh, artifact uh, paradox of timing in the fossil record, uh, all as evolution of dinosaurs to birds would predict very nicely. Where was this fossil found? In China. I mean, all of the course. dinosaurs are coming Where out of else? China. Where uh, else? There's, they have, there's formations there that are where a lot of these fossils are coming from. And uh, this is the first Jurassic um, feathered dinosaur, by the way, or bird ancestor. And the beautiful thing about this, this find is that uh, it, it preserves soft tissues very nicely. So you get a nice impression, not just the bones themselves, but an impression of the feathers. So this is why we're learning a lot more about feathered dinosaurs. It's the way in which these fossils were preserved. In fact, this leads me to my next paleontological story. They also found a pterosaur in China 
in one yeah. of these deposits that that preserves soft tissue impressions. No way. It had feathers? Not feathers, but it had it was fuzzy. It had like fur. Oh no. Downy Excellent. it could be like either downy or furry, so that they're still not sure if it was more like down or more like fur. Now, a ter- pterosaur is like uh, the pterodon is a flying reptile, not a not a dinosaur, right? But still a flying reptile. Flying reptiles, not dinosaurs. Always right. depicted as leathery wings, right? And with fur. Oh, wow. they may all have been furry, but we never knew because we didn't. We never How discovered one cool. with the soft tissue impressions to tell us. Now we have it. Isn't that oh, wow. amazing? Change all the books. I can't wait to see to see the artist's impression. You know, I, I so hope that there's some cloaked alien probe orbiting the Earth that took video of all that cool stuff back then. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that cool? Furry pterosaurs? Love to see it. Didn't see that coming. Mm-mm. <laughs> all right, let's switch gears here from fossils to physics. Bob, you're going to tell us about nano springs. Boing. Yes, I am. This, uh, this news item came out recently. kind of piqued my curiosity. I call this one PCNA number 27, which stands for Potential Carbon Nanotube Application number 127. This time, the application may be applied to battery technology. And if any industry needs a breakthrough, I think battery technology is is one of the biggies. The attention-grabbing thing here, though, is that uh, the scientists at MIT, who are awesome, by the way, believe that carbon nanotubes can be formed into batteries made of little micro springs and that these springs could store – uh, for example, 1,000 times more energy than steel springs. So uh, pretty pretty incredible stuff. Now, carbon nanotubes, if you remember, are, are essentially carbon atoms arranged like chicken wire rolled into a tube. Um, th- this is called an allotrope of carbon, just like diamond is an allotrope of carbon and graphite is as well. Now, in a nutshell, the carbon nanotubes are very interesting because they have very unusual properties at the scale that could provide breakthroughs in electronics and optics and nanotech, even architectural designs, etc. Uh, as I see it, these, uh, these battery springs, nano battery springs, are, have a couple key advantages that they can offer battery technology. One is what they can do with the stored energy. They can either release it slowly over a long period of time, just like a conventional battery, or they can shoot their load all at once like a capacitor. Capacitor. So because of that, it's, these, these, are, these are more like a hybrid between a battery and a capacitor, I think. Maybe we'll, they'll call it uh, something silly like a, a bat sitter or capacitory or something stupid like that. The other great advantage to I this technology – Okay. <laughs> the other the other great advantage to this technology is that the stored energy never dissipates away like a like a conventional battery. Uh, for example, a conventional nickel metal hydride batteries they lose power uh, when they're sitting idle about a one percent a day, uh, as much as forty percent a month. Um, now, the authors of the articles I read compare their springs to a mousetrap. But once you set it, it never needs to be re- you know it never needs to be reset or, or maintained. The, uh, the energy is stored in the trap spring, uh, whether it's a year or 10 or 20 years, 30 years later. Now, some of the examples that they give for this te- kind of technology would be, for example, an emergency backup power supply that, could, that can be set up and then left for years with no maintenance or recharge or change of batteries. Um, also, you could use this technology to power devices potentially um, incre- at, in incredibly harsh environments like um, deep oil wells with incredible pressures and temperatures or in space. How about uh, for, on space vehicles where you have temperatures cycling between incredible heat and then – and then incredible cold. They could be useful there as well. Um, as usual, there's hurdles to overcome. Wouldn't you love to read a cool science news item and they say that all the technological hurdles have been overcome right. and it will, it will be for sale on QBC tomorrow. 
Uh, well, not this time, unfortunately. But to make these nano spring batteries practical, scientists will need to assemble the nanotubes into longer and thicker fibers while still maintaining uh, all the amazing benefits that they have at the small scale. Carol Livermore, Associate Professor of Mechanical Engineering, describes a major hurdle. She says these scaled-up springs need to need to be large, i.e. incorporating many carbon nanotubes. But those individual carbon nanotubes need to work well enough together in the overall assembly of tubes for it to have comparable properties to the individual tubes. Uh, that is not easy to do. So um, hopefully uh, this will progress nicely and uh, we'll see some uh, some big changes in battery technology because we need it. All right, although, time. Bob, you left out a critical piece of information. I, read I this, did. I read, <laughs> I read this whole article. I didn't read the blurb at the top. And like you, I was sort of salivating the whole way through, but I yeah, kept waiting. What? So what's the capacity? You know, what, how much energy are we talking about? And then uh-huh. it says that potentially this can hold pound per, per right. pound for pound as much as a state-of-the-art lithium-ion battery. I know. But that's yep, it, just as much <laughs> as a lithium-ion battery. No better. Come on. I know. I, I remember that. I meant, to, I meant to throw that in there. Um, it's funny because they – they throw the they throw that this one thing out to you where they say that it's more power than a thou you know a thousand times the power of uh, of comparable springs uh, with steel springs and then in the very next sentence they say that it's it's just roughly equivalent to to the existing technology. Thank you. Yeah, it's like well, yeah, that's yeah, that was kind of disappointing. I should have included that. Yeah, that was weird. I mean, couldn't it have been ten times as much? I mean, something. Right. No. If we even one point one times. But who knows? Maybe they'll be able to. Uh, <laughs> Get more, you know, maybe this will, the there'll be a technology curve but, for but, this. But, Steve, it, it doesn't really matter that much because it's not just a matter of just the raw power. The fact that, that it could use all its power all at once like a, like a capacitor or very slowly. No, I get it. There are other I, advantages, but not the, not the one we really need for things like electric cars, right? It, maybe it might be a supplemental yeah. battery in an electric car, as you say. Maybe. They also didn't mention – how quickly uh, we we might be able to charge something like mm-hmm, that? If you mm-hmm. if you could charge it in thirty seconds, and well, okay, that's pretty damn cool. Yeah, that's true. Just a couple more quick items before we get on to a couple of questions. Jay, you're going to tell us about the latest shenanigans from Kirk Cameron. Well, not just Kirk Cameron; it's also from our friend Ray Comfort, Banana Man. Ray Comfort. Yeah, Banana yeah. Man. Banana Comfort. You know, everybody knows Ray Comfort is a known young Earth creationist. And uh, and in his ongoing attempt to thwart evolution, evolutionary theory, and uh, the education of evolution, what uh, what these couple of bozos and apparently to bring down the average intelligence of creationists, absolutely, which is no easy task. Ray, along with his soulmate Kirk Cameron, have decided to give away fifty thousand copies of of Darwin's Origin of the Species. Uh, this is really? to, yeah, isn't that interesting? But no, hold on, Evan. Yeah. I hope you're sitting down, my oh. friend. Uh, this is to commemorate okay. uh, 150 years after the book was originally published. They're doing this on November 22nd of this year, 2009. The thorn in the side here is that Comfort has crafted a 50-page intro where he tries to d- discredit evolutionary theory, and uh, some of the points that he tries to make is that, as if it matters, is that uh, Darwin was a misogynist. That Hitler believed in evolution and that there was a connection be- between Hitler and the theory of evolution. And then he also goes on to make all of the same exact logical fallacies that, he- that he's made over and over and over again. And a few comments that he made, which I, I thought were interesting, was uh, a book can't spontaneously form, therefore evolution is wrong. Uh, he also says all dumb scientists think everything came about after nothing exploded. And the other one said uh, that Hitler was motivated by evolution. So... 
in my opinion, this is an attempt for comfort to get his publication on college campuses into the books of students, especially young students, obviously, so he can influence them to, to see the alternate theory of creation. The thing about Ray Comfort is that, you know, the guy really does not care about scholarship or factual accuracy or the truth or anything. He really is such an apologist for young earth creationism. really is terrible. It's an embarrassment. And finally, you know, one thing I wanted to say to our our listeners was that if anybody wants to organize um, trying to get their hands on these books or, or at least some of them, I think it would be a great thing for skeptics in the United States to do is to just try to get as many of these books in their in their hands. And, you know, a lot of people have blogged about this where they said, you know, just rip out the first 50 pages and you'll have a copy of it. I think it would be a great thing to keep intact and to hold mm-hmm. on to. As a matter of fact, I would die for a copy of this. Yeah, so any listeners who are going to be on college campuses when they're distributing these books, try to grab up as many as you can. If, if you don't mind, send us a copy. Yeah, it would, would be interesting to have a copy of it. Well, but more importantly, I think it would be it would be a good – a good protest to go and take the books peacefully without getting into any confrontation. Get as many of them as you can. And while I'm waiting for somebody to, to grab the, a copy and just dissect it to see what was, you know, what was added and what was deleted, what was taken out, and uh, just to dissect it that way and see uh, what exactly what did they do to it. I would be surprised if there's one original thought in those 50 pages. I mean, did you guys get a, a look at the video that that girl made? Uh, that was one of the quickest video responses to. Uh, to the announcement of the passing out of these books. Um, she calls the video Origin of Stupidity, and her YouTube username is uh, Zomgitz Chris. And I just loved her video. She did a great job of, of tearing apart the idea of this book. You know, it's only a six-minute video, but she covered a pretty good amount of material and did a good job of just, of just uh, tearing it down. One more quick follow-up before we go on to a couple of uh, letters. We reported previously about a uh, homeopath, Thomas Sam, and his wife, Manju, who were arrested for the death of their young child who had a severe case of eczema. And the father, who's a homeopath, decided to treat the child only with homeopathic remedies. And as a result of that, she died a long, horrible, painful death mm. you know, from something that would have been completely treatable with standard medicine. The quick follow-up is that the, uh, the, these parents, uh, Thomas M. and Mandrew, were convicted and sentenced to a combined uh, 10 years in jail. He's going to spend six years in jail at least, and she's going to spend four years in jail for the manslaughter, of, and by, manslaughter by criminal negligence of their nine-month-old old daughter, Gloria. So still a very sad story, but that's the follow-up on it. You know, what can we say about things like this? I mean, everyone must have a similar reaction. Like, just unbelievable to think that parents would keep legitimate medical attention from their from their child and that they would literally just be giving the, that child water. Yeah, and, and especially, it's even more heinous when you learn, when you go back and read the accounts of the story and so forth, the wife, Manju, when she apparently uh, some time ago fell fell ill with something. She went and saw a real doctor. <laughs> she didn't rely on the uh, homeopathic remedies that uh, she and her husband regularly regularly dole out to the uh, to people who don't know any better. No, she went and got real treatment, real medicine. Yeah, that's, that might be partly responsible, Evan, because the baby couldn't actually say, hey, I'm in pain, you know, I'm having trouble or, or anything. You know, the baby was just crying, I'd mm-hmm. imagine. 
So yeah, you're right. It just may, it just brings that point even closer to home when you think about it. Like the the actual negligence that took place here. This is one of those stories that makes it think that you know we really should start outlawing pseudoscience like this. I mean, if it's if it's killing children, we should have laws against things like this. Well, we've discussed this before. I mean, in various countries, there are systems in place to prevent either practicing medicine without a license or pre- practicing essentially substandard, you know, quackery. The problem is that uh, because of the alternative medicine movement has been successful in weakening these laws and in, you know, bamboozling enough of the public into thinking that this is actually an alternative, that things like this can happen. At least in this case, there was some measure of justice at the end. Yep. I mean, it still doesn't solve the problem, but... Well, let's go on to a few of your questions. The first letter comes from Jason, who writes, Hi, SGU, all the way from Sydney, Australia. I have a question which is probably more applicable to Stephen more than anyone else. As I understand it, your stance on the afterlife is agnostic. How do you deal with a patient who wishes to consult in you about the spiritual afterlife? It probably goes without saying that the patient's state of mind takes the utmost priority, so a debate is obviously out of the question. Such issues, however, have made me uncomfortable in the past, and as a young medical student, I would like to hear your take on how to talk to a patient through the matter, although not necessarily pretending that I share their beliefs in the afterlife. Thank you, and keep up the great work. Jason. Yeah, this is certainly something that comes up. I mean, honestly, maybe not as much as you might think. You know, I've handed out terminal diagnoses quite uh, quite often, and yet rarely do patients consult me on my, for spiritual advice. I think they understand that that's not my role as their physician. Um, the the few times when when patients brought up uh, you know spiritual topics. Again, just in general, the the physician's job is not to impose their belief system on the therapeutic relationship, on the patient. You don't really have to re- reveal your belief system to the patient. And you can talk about it in ways that you don't have to say flat out, you know, I'm not going to tell you or or what you believe or what you don't believe. Certainly it is not your position to get into a debate about spiritual, you know, faith with a patient. You know, one very, I think, uh, productive way to deal with that is just to, is to ask them if they've talked about it with their family, you know, with their, their pastor, priest, you know, rabbi, whoever would be appropriate, you know, to, to, to discuss with them the need and the benefit for a support structure and for them to reach out to whatever support structure they have. And, you know, there may be new ones that you could offer to them, like patient support groups, et cetera. So that's where you just take the conversation to the practical question of, you know, in difficult times like this, you need some kind of social support structure to help you, you know, deal with the practical issues as well as the emotional issues. And so you very easily just sidetrack any direct questions. But honestly, no, no, it's, you know, after practicing as long as I have, no patient has directly confronted me and like really said, you know, I want you to tell me what your religious beliefs are. I, th- I think simply because it's sort of intuitive that it's not appropriate. Let's go on to the next question. This one is a little bit more fun. This one comes from Trinity Sean Melvin from Valparaiso, Florida. And Trinity writes, I recently purchased season one of Star Trek The Next Generation and I'm loving it. It's particularly entertaining because every once in a while something happens in the show and I suddenly get a reference that you guys made but never quite understood until now. (laughs) (laughs) Way to catch up. 
Throughout the show, they scanned planets and vessels for life signs or life forms. It got me thinking, knowing that chi and other such supposed life forces are scientifically untenable, is there some quality of living matter that sets it apart from non-living matter in such a way as to feasibly make it remotely discernible to some kind of instrument? It seems to work on reptilian species, so it doesn't rely on body heat or anything quite as simple as that. I know Star Trek is famous for the technobabble and does it and does have its share of plain old impossibilities. But I'm curious about the plausibility of this aspect of the show. I'm guessing I'm asking exactly how far I actually need to suspend my disbelief in this case. Thanks a bunch, guys. I'm off to tell more friends about your show. Ooh. Thank you, Trinity. So yeah, this is kind of fun. This is purely speculative. I mean, certainly we've talked about the fact that for shows like Star Trek, you know, you, you do suspend your disbelief. There are plot devices, things that are necessary to drive the plot forward. They don't necessarily have to make technological sense. But it is a fun game to speculate about the way things might work or what is plausible and possible given what we know about the laws of physics, for example. So the question is, what is the what is the theoretical mechanism by which you know on board the Starship Enterprise you could quote unquote scan for life signs um, on another ship or on this on the uh, surface of a planet, for example? You guys have any thoughts? Uh, movement. Animals move <laughs> constantly, yeah. so you could start with that, and then perhaps some other readings kick in right after that to just kind of verify that what is actually moving is giving off some sort of biosignature, whether it's a gas they're emitting or, or something. Yeah, I I move, movement was my first thought. That's actually a good thought. I mean, given the level of our technology today, you extrapolate that into the future a couple hundred years, and it seems pretty you know plausible that you would be able to use. Um, some kind of a you know radar or Doppler, um, or just really you know a very powerful camera to scan for just physically moving objects, uh, and then you could hone in on those, and then you could use um, infrared. Now sometimes they do distinguish species by their temperature, for example. So they right. they are it does it does seem that they're using some kind of a thermal you know infrared or whatever uh, imaging. Yeah, I would, I would think that would be very, very big, very important, although the, the um, Trinity is kind of discounting it in a way. Uh, but I think that would be that would be big. I mean, clearly, lots of different species have a, te- have a temperature range. I mean, even even the reptiles, uh, I mean, they wouldn't they wouldn't be at uh, an environmental temperature necessarily, would they, Steve? Uh, I, I think you could even use it to uh, to maybe perhaps distinguish uh, the reptilian gorn as well, couldn't we? Well, certainly some some reptiles – are you know cold blooded and their temperature is the same pretty much as their environment. That doesn't necessarily mean that they yeah, wouldn't give true. off any heat. But that that would depend on how much energy they've uh, they've absorbed then through the through yeah, the environment. So right. yeah, that would be very very difficult for them. What about uh, neuronal that, complexity somehow? Well, yeah. You know, so te- so we we do. So what signals do living things give off? They give off heat. They move. Car- carbon dioxide. They may be you know exhaling gases. That, that could be potentially t- detectable through spectroscopy or some similar method. Um, what about heart sounds? Sounds, you know? Um, again, you, this is assuming the ability to detect tiny, tiny sounds from very, very far away. Yeah, that is a tiny sound. <laughs> but <laughs> but not impossible. Outside the atmosphere as well. Yeah, but we're, we, you know, again, the, in terms of the technology, we're right. assuming that they're using some incredible technique, you know, that we can only right. guess at 
that will enable them to, I mean, you know, l- listen in on vibrations in the atmosphere, sounds, and even right. triangulate to some specific object, even a small object very far away. That's not implausible. That just would require a certain amount of technological uh, sophistication. But, you know, the, the information is there and accessible. So thanks for the question, Trinity. I mean, you get highly speculative, but, but, but fun to talk about. One more quick email. This one comes from Lance Spangler, who gives his location as FOB Bucca Iraq, or Iraq. FOB stands for Forward Operating Base, and this is a prison oh, cool. camp. It's a prison camp. That could be a first for, <laughs> for us. <laughs> well, and Lance Spangler, does that sound like a name you would make up for a military yes. guy? Yeah. Yes, it does same. Colonel Lance Spangler. <laughs> FOB. He writes, I'll try to keep this short. He doesn't really. Uh, but sure, you know, better to correspondence. I'm new to podcasts, having purchased my iPod about nine months ago, but it is a great medium. I have a broadcasting background and appreciate this new media and its potential. Um, here's the question if you should ever have time for it on the air. A friend and I are arguing over the answer. You're flying along in a spacecraft at the speed of light. You have a light bulb in, in the ceiling of the fan. Can you see the light since its speed is relative to the speed of the craft? And taking it a step further, if you turn the spacecraft's headlights on, will they illuminate the asteroid just ahead of you? Or since the light being emitted has a relative forward speed of zero, based on the spacecraft speed, would it look as if the light wasn't even turned on? Okay, wacky question, but sometimes we have too much time on our hands here in the desert. Well, one one problem right off is physics itself has a problem with the premise Initially, you're assuming that you're traveling at the speed of light, and that's the big problem because you can't travel. Uh, at the speed you of light. you can't, can't travel it. at the speed of light. It would take infinite energy to get up there. And then, even if you can get to exactly at the speed of light, you could argue that time doesn't exist at that at that speed. Like a, a photon, a photon. If a photon could know anything, it would know that it was created, and then it, it hit it. It was absorbed at its destination. And whether there was a foot. Be- between those two events or a billion light years, it wouldn't make any difference because time essentially doesn't exist. So then you couldn't do anything if you were at the so speed of light. So let's say 99.9% okay. of the speed of light. Then the problem there would be that if, if the scientists on the ship would, say, measure the headlight speed, uh, they would measure it as, as the speed of light. Speed I mean, of that's, light. Exactly. That's, that's, that's the law. You, the speed of light is invariable. To you, it always seems to be at the speed of traveling at the speed of light, whether you're traveling a foot a second or 0.99999% of the, of the speed of light. And, uh, and then, of course, space-time kind of adapts itself so that it, so that, that works, so that when you yes. do measure it, it, is, it does appear to be moving at the speed of light, even though you are traveling uh, very close uh, to the speed of light yourself. So special relativity, time dilation, all that comes into play. Right. So there's a couple of different ways to explain this to, to help maybe bring it home. One is that you do, you don't add speeds when you're talking about you know light. Right. The speed you don't add the speed of the light to the craft. The, the speed of light is always is a constant. It always is the speed of light, regardless of your frame of reference. So here's the other thing: when you say you're moving at you know 99.9% the speed of light, that relative only has what? meaning if you say relative to what, relative to right. something. Any physical experiment that you did wouldn't be any different. The light in your cabin would work just as well. If there was an asteroid traveling ahead of you, light would be bouncing back and forth between you and the asteroid exactly the same. So in other words, that's the whole point of relativity, that there's no experiment you can do that would tell you 
what your uniform speed was because it really doesn't have any meaning to say that you're traveling at any speed. It only does relative to something else. All right. And no matter what your frame of reference, the speed of light is the speed of light and behaves just like the speed of light. That was one of Einstein's key insights right yeah, there. absolutely. Well, let's go on with our interview. We are at TAM7, and we're sitting here now with Mark Edward. Mark, welcome to the Skeptic's hey, it's, Guide. it's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And Mark is a magician and now a blogger. And yes. And one of the members of the, the pilot, the Skeptologists, we're, who unfortunately is stuck in the pilot phase. <laughs> Part of what we're here is to get updated on what's going on with that. So, Mark, tell us about, about your career. Okay. Well, uh, I started off as a, a, a kid magician. My grandfather was a magician. And uh, I was always very much interested in magic and illusion and uh, the paranormal and the supernatural. I, it's always been in my life in one form or another. And being a magician, I got more interested in mentalism, which is a branch of magic. But it's not, you don't pull rabbits out of hats. You pretend to read minds and predict the future. And I found that that was a much more sophisticated, if that's the right word, form of magic because people believed in it more. If you If you said you could turn a green handkerchief into a red handkerchief it was to me what's the big deal you know there was no meaning to it nobody really believes you're doing it no especially especially colorblind people who can't see red and green (laughs) i mean people would see it and they go oh very clever nice sleight of hand next you know and and i was very unsatisfied for many years although i did rope tricks and card tricks and all that but what really interested me is that if you change a dynamic by saying that there was uh magic with a k in it or you referred to some bigger universe suddenly people were standing in line for it and saying wow how did you develop your your skills and and of course my ego was charmed with that i said wow this is this is different now people are coming to me and i don't have to struggle quite as much if you worked in restaurants it was kind of like uh, being a bad mariachi player you know you come to the table and say would you like to see some magic and people were kind of like well, okay, you know, but if you said, would you like a tarot reading? It's like, where's the line, you know? Where do we sign up for a tarot reading? So then through mentalism, I started doing readings, and uh, I was a, quote, professional psychic, unquote, for about nine years on the the famed uh, Psychic Friends Network, and I decided that I would infiltrate that. The whole time I was doing that, I was also very good friends with Michael Shermer and Skeptic Magazine. I was on the editorial board there. So I've been walking two two very interesting lines, the, the skeptics and the believers, and I wanted to really infiltrate the soft, dark underbelly of the psychic world and try to work myself to the top of it just to see what that whole thing was about. So during this time, though, to be clear, you were presenting yourself as a quote-unquote genuine psychic, not as a... Oh, I never did disclaimer, no. Well, I, there were two sides of it. I did... I did corporate parties and, and, and things like that where I was, it was strictly entertainment. But then I had another side to my personality, which was where I was working in a spiritualist church, and I was absorbing as much woo as I could get, and it was very mm-hmm. intense. It was, and they, they accepted me as one of them. With Some of them, they were, like, they were like the people who were very deluded, and then there were the people who were kind of the wink-wink nod psychics who knew that I was kind of there for nefarious mm-hmm. reasons and they accepted me so it was kind of like being in a sideshow for a while it was very interesting <laughs> now during this time 
did you meet and talk with other people who were working as psychics? Oh, absolutely. Who were open to you about the fact that they knew it was all BS and they were doing mentalism, or was it always a, like the, a secret that nobody talked about? It was. It was. Just, it was kind of a like I say, a wink, wink, nod uh, situation. Uh, the best way I can describe it is, uh, if you know about carnies and carnivals. Mm-hmm. If you go down the midway and they're doing the, you know, ball, penny a pitch, you know, step right up, fill the ring on the Coke bottle. If you say the term with it to them, this is the way it used to be, then they will automatically leave you alone because they know that you're with it and you're not going to fall for the con. So in the psychic world, there is kind of a tenuous understanding that way. They, they will not come up to you and say, hey, we know you're a phony just like us, but they know by your tone and your tenor and how you're presenting yourself, it's kind of a wink-wink nod type mm-hmm. of a thing. Mm-hmm. So, and I fell in with that lot because they, they never outwardly said, you know, you're a phony just like us, but it was understood. Right. So it was kind of a, a, a understood situation which is very comfortable because I was able to learn so much about what was going on and they didn't hold back. There were other people who were kind of the other side of the camp were the people who were the dyed-in-the-wool believers, but they were only being shepherded in so that they could become phonies. You know, there was kind of a, it was like going to psychic psychic grad school. You know, (laughs) you, you come in as a believer and you end making money you know mm-hmm. so and and but that in between phase some people knew some people didn't but the real pros that i met they knew what they were doing how long did you do it for about nine years you wow. know nine years of uh i was on the phone a lot and I, I i learned a lot doing that because what i tried to do is be honest with people in other words if i couldn't handle their problem i would give out an 800 number and say, no, you really need to talk to a marriage counselor or an abuse shelter or something like that. Mm-hmm. Of course, the people who are running the company didn't like that very much. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, and then what happened is over the years, they started to put these restrictions on how you would talk and what you would say. And I finally I said, you know, I can't do this. This is unethical. So I just grew a conscience and said, forget it. What so, was the reaction of the people that you told to hey, go to a marriage counselor for this type of thing. Would they they be- usually said, well, what's the number? You know, they said, really? What's a, what's a woman's shelter? You know, they had no idea. They oh. were like, like I had one woman. She said, well, I got a problem. And I said, what? And she said, well, my boyfriend gouged my eye out. And I'm like, really? <laughs> you know? wow. and she said, Can you tell me what to do? And I said, you need to call a woman's shelter. And she was like, what's that? And so it was wow. amazing. I mean, the amount of things that I had on, on the, during those years that were just people looking for help. But no. they didn't know where to, where else to turn. Is that about the most severe thing you ever heard in oh, your no, years of doing that? Terrible things, terrible. Much much worse than that. <laughs> one one time, I, you know, and, and this is why I, you know I had went back and forth about whether it was a value or not, is because you know I saved somebody's life one time, and it was very interesting because I was I was on the line. It was late at night, early in the morning, and a woman called, and I was frankly I'd been on for about seven hours straight on the telephone. So I was kind of like, ah, give her a stock reading, get rid of her. So I kind of blew, blew her off, you know, gave her a stock reading. She disappeared, and about three months later, I got a phone call from the president of the company, vice president of the Psychic Friends Network, this, okay. the woman who was the trainer. She said, do you remember this woman, whatever her name was, blah, blah, blah. And I said, no, I don't, not really. Do you remember this night, this call, this minute? And I said, no. And she said, well, we just want you to know that... She had a gun to her head, and she was going to commit suicide. But what she told her, she changed her mind, and now she's going to school, and she's taking nursing, and she's turned her whole life around. And I was like, 
But I had given her just a general reading. So, you know. So the power of that, I think, stuck with me for a oh long time. Oh, my God. That's it's intense. a good thing you chose reading C instead of reading E. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? No kidding. It had a different outcome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I had tried to really understand her, she might have hung up the phone and blew her head off. So, I mean, these are the... And there are things like that that happen frequently. So, for me, it was a really interesting couple of years because I, I got to the bottom of the business and I saw the very worst, but I also saw that there was something going on there that was of value. Mm-hmm. You know, it was because it was it was the poor man's therapy. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting way of looking at yeah, it. Yeah, I didn't think of it that way. Did you ever do the bit where you're like, hello. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we are here to help you. Like super slow oh, yeah. talking. Well, but the thing out. is, the, I didn't have to because after a while, the, the company made all these ways mm. that they could make money. In other words, <clears throat> you started getting charged as soon as you called the company. And then they had all these commercials and different things, choose your psychic. So... The uh, standard caller, they would... Uh, and by the way, I can only say these things because the 10 years has passed. I had to sign a confidentiality agreement with yeah. the company. And so now, in, wow. in my book, Psychic Blues, it's all there, psychic friends. You should buy a copy of Deanne Warwick. Are you out there listening? <laughs> yeah, right. Want to read your story? I have it in print mm-hmm. now. So, so, you know, they made up all these rules that were very manipulative. And I could reveal some of those, but maybe not now. Yeah, but what about Miss <laughs> Cleo? Come on. I didn't I had nothing to do with her. But she's the uh-huh. real deal. What do you see in the <laughs> What do you see? Hey, man. Yeah, what do you see in the two of cups, baby? No, she was she was at, I mean, I got I managed to get in right on the ground floor. I think it was like 94 or something when it was just burgeoning and they were they started off they thought they only needed about I think a hundred psychics, and it went to like a thousand in the one year, wow. and they were making literally millions of dollars. So anyway, it's that's part of my past. I had to around. I, I don't hear about about psychic psychic No, it's all they, because what it is they, is it became it became such a gigantic Frankenstein monster that they got top heavy and greedy, and they ended up getting a lot of lawsuits, and they went, finally went bankrupt. Okay, wow, that's unbelievable. That, that was predictable. Yeah. When you revealed, did you just stop doing it, or did you actually tell people, hey, I'm, I'm, I don't believe in any of this stuff? No, what I, I would never say I didn't believe it, because I, I didn't think it was any, had anything to do with belief. It was just like, you know, I believe in gravity. If I drop something on the table, it's going to hit the table. So yeah. people have issues, you know, and, and my thing was, I would just be totally honest with them. Like, a lot of people would just call up, and I, they'd say, I need lotto numbers, that's all I need. Make it quick. And One, I'd two, say, three, four, five, six. I'd say, well, here's your lotto numbers. Goodbye. <laughs> you know? and, they, and then they'd call back, they didn't, I didn't win. I said, well, you didn't ask me you wanted winning lotto numbers. You yeah. just can't. In other words, I played with them so that I let them know that I wasn't serious about yeah. it. Mm-hmm. And, it. And by not being serious, because so many of the other people I worked with, they were just very doom and gloom and, you know, yeah. they're totally deluded. And I would hear, because they gave us a chance sometimes to tune into the other people and what they're talking wow. about. And I just couldn't believe Ooh. it. I was just, so I decided I was going to be the honest psychic. And I was not going to say if they, if they challenge me. And to me, one of the best parts was when I would get a skeptic, because I love getting a skeptic call, because mm. I'd, I'd carry a conversation with them. And, and I wouldn't always win them over, but, but I, had, I had certain times where you know, I like the challenge and I like to be able to kind of, and also they had a thing where they would, they would do a drop-in listens. In other words, the person who was a supervisor, you wouldn't know it, but they'd be listening to your call. Oh. 
Yeah, so you had to be kind of careful what you said. This call may be randomly recorded. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but I, I actually like that, too, because I skirted the very borders of, you know, mm-hmm. being a skeptic psychic. In other words, I, I just took it right to the edge where I didn't say I was anything, but I didn't say I wasn't either. So mm. it, that kind of inculcated this mindset that I was walking both, both realms at the same time. Did everything really funny happen? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, you would have what we... My ex-wife and I, we both worked on this line, and we would call them ringers. And ringers were like just these stories that were stranger than any fiction you could imagine. And they would just be, they would be so crazy that we had to sit down and write them. And later on, I went back over them and, and made this book, Psychic Blues. So, I mean, yeah, there were just... Can you give us one? I had, I had one guy who, uh, he had this phobia that there were tiny little scissors everywhere Whoa! Every, everywhere he went they were under his pillow i found another pair of scissors today and i said well what do they look like and he said well they're just miniature scissors Nano and, they, scissors. and someone's trying to gaslight me so i feel like someone's putting them there for a reason to make me crazy and he called me about four or five Whoa. times and i said where are the scissors today and he said they were in my uh, juice bottle at work you know what i mean <laughs> stuff like wow. that <laughs> But then Mentally, somebody, like, yeah, somebody like that needs to be on medication. Yeah. They need First, to see yeah. a psychiatrist. Yeah. That's, that's schizophrenic well, or something. Well, yeah, that's what I, I said. Are you seeing a therapist? Are you, you know, is this, are you taking LSD? You know, yeah. I tried to ask them what's going on. And, and that was what was sometimes very strange is they, they showed no outward signs of anything except that delusion. You know, mm-hmm. oh, I'm, you know, I work in a bank and I'm married and I've got three kids. It's just the scissors, you know. Damn. Stuff like that. Steve, so yeah. that, that really, obviously, that's, that's, a, that's a psychosis. That's a psychotic disorder. Yeah. Yeah. High-functioning psychotic disorder <laughs> yeah. in, that, yeah. in that person. But you never said something like, yeah, your, your spirit guide is telling me that you oh, no, see no, a psychiatrist. No, no I would, would never do anything like that. Well, you know, that, that would be uh, – that would I, I just did never went to that level yeah, because yeah. I did not want to make it sound like – because somebody like that is obviously delusional. You don't need to give them another delusion, mm-hmm. you know. I tried to actually <laughs> yeah. backtrack and say, I'd say, oh, this, you know, I think I told a guy one time, this is not that unusual, mm-hmm. you know, because you don't want them to think that you're making fun of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can't like go, what are you, nuts, you know. Yeah. So what are you doing now? Now I'm trying to get this skeptologist show <laughs> off the ground. I'm really uh, very frustrated. I'm trying to push... Uh, we have a, a, a blog site. It's called www.skepticblog.org. And uh, I'm pushing this agenda of uh, ambush skepticism, guerrilla skepticism, because my background before I was uh, a magician and a mentalist, I, my degree is in art, and my degree was in performance art. So I, I used to do street theater and performance art, and I really want to find a way to get out into the culture and cause some trouble with skepticism so we can get in the public eye and people can say my, my goal is to kind of be like uh, the Andy Rooney of the paranormal mm-hmm. you know and, and have it so people think what's going to happen this week with those skeptic people you know <laughs> it's kind of like Greenpeace only not like Greenpeace yeah. but, but a, 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 uh, an activist group mm-hmm. that's visible that people who are like you know the phony psychic Sylvia and all her, her ilk wonder you know they might be in the crowd tonight. What are they going to do? Yeah. And plan things like that so that it becomes visible. And, and, and a lot of humor. I think humor is really important. So uh, I, I do that. I, I'm writing another book right now. I have a lot of books on uh, theory of mentalism and how to uh, be effective performer. So, uh, do you uh, still perform? Oh, yeah. 
Oh, yeah, I have. But it, I have to say, the, the uh, mentalism side is, is kind of slow right now. Is it? Yeah, and ever since 9-11, the whole seance business is just... I, don't, I think I've had maybe three seances where I used to do probably two or three a month. Mm-hmm. And after 9-11, for some reason, Why? it just dropped off. Wow, I wouldn't have thought of that. I, it's, I, I think people, it's not, I mean, calling back the dead is not as fun as it used to be. <laughs> you know, I think people have kind of a different take on it, you know. So, but hmm. I still do seances. I, st- I try to do those uh, as much as possible because for me that's really the, the acting where the acting role comes in. You do that, uh, the, the people that are attending the seance, are they doing it like a party, like it, like as a piece of entertainment, or do they believe Oh, yeah. It? Well, I don't do, I, I tell people, you know, I, I, I don't do real, quote-unquote, real seances. I, I tell people, you know, I can do that, but it'll cost you a lot more money. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> and that usually scares them away. Because when I first started doing it, I did try a couple of those just to see what it was like, and it was pretty ugly. I, I, didn't, I didn't feel that I was in my, yeah. my realm. So I tell people it's for entertainment and it's done as a, you know, you have to pick a specific entity like Jimi Hendrix or Jim Morrison or, you know, Michael Jackson, any Michael Jackson takers out there listening, <laughs> you know, and then you, then you, you tailor the seance to that person. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, a, it's a party thing. Yeah, that sounds like a, a really a lot of fun. It's great. I mean, pe- people love it. But once again, I don't know why, but it's... Phew, yeah. Not not doing too well in that market right now. Of the world of mentalists, who, in your opinion, is is the best one out there? Ah, oh, Geller. <laughs> That's really surprising, oh, wow. but good question, but good answer. I mean, but Stephen, he's kind of fallen off. But I think, I mean, if you've ever seen Yuri work a room, he is absolutely stupendous. Yeah. And I would never he, I call him a magician or a mentalist. He wouldn't call himself that, mm. but. But as a performer, I, I think that he's probably... I mean, look, he changed the whole way we look at silverware. Yep. You know? And I mean, there hasn't been anybody like that since. And I've never seen him bend a spork, though. A spork? Did they make metal sporks? It must, it must be very interesting, though, for someone like you to be in the room with him because... I mean, you you see what he's doing, like you know, you right. and Randy. Like, I appreciate you what know, he yeah, does. I actually appreciate what he does. Whereas, I mean, most skeptics are like, "Oh, that," you know, he's reprehensible. But yeah. I see it in a totally different light. I see it as a as a very keen manipulator who knows how to take advantage of every possible moment, and that's key to being a good mentalist or medium. Is yeah. you have to you have to understand the dynamics of a room right away mm-hmm. and know where to focus and where to back off, and that's. That's the real work. You yep. know, the tricks are icing on the cake. The real thing is the mindset. Yeah. He's got that down. Now, when you, you do know. seances, do you do purely, like, mentalism seances? It's just all in your performance? Or do you, do, do you add any physical elements like noises or anything like that? Yeah, I, I, do, I do add in. Uh, I have a – it depends on the venue and how much, you know, those things add on to the bill. You know, in other words, I have a, <laughs> I have a walk-in, walk-out seance that i do which is the the the, the base rate then i add things on i, I talking to the to the host and i say do you want to have background noise do you want to have picture frames tilt do you want and it adds yeah. on you know yeah mark can you show us something anything I'm, i hate to ask you i know but I, i'm such a huge fan of magic and everything if you have anything i'd love to. sure well let, let's let's try to contact uh, the spirit of michael jackson let's do it all right so uh rebecca join us yeah we need yeah we need everybody to to, to link hands on the table just real quick here and i'm gonna maybe put the water in the center because you don't want to if the table starts to go over to the ceiling or something we we want to be sure that there's no 
Okay, now I want you to lay your hands flat okay. on the table. Yeah. And I want you to uh, just touch your little fingers. What we're, what we're forming here is this is called the psychic circle. Okay, so we have our hands flat on the table with yeah. our palms down. Now, if we could... Oh, we can't turn the lights out, can we? I can do it. Yeah, just get up for a second. Can you make it back to your chair to be able to see? Oh, yeah, I can do it. Okay, because the spirits work best in the darkness. We all know that. I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah, so that's perfect. Well, we do have the exit sign, but that's, that's, that's actually... Enough, yeah. Red light is good, okay? Now, as I said, you may feel things. Once we start this brief seance, you may feel things. You may sense things. You know, you may feel a light touch on your shoulder or a cold breeze or something like that. So don't be afraid because the spirits are all here to entertain us. They mean no harm. And Michael Jackson, you know, he was a gentle soul. And if the worst that can happen is maybe some cookies and milk will materialize <laughs> in the center of the, the worst, table. Yes. Okay, so, so uh, <clears throat> relax. Everyone take a deep cleansing breath. <sighs> spirits. We are here at TAM 7. I feel that you are near us in this room. I feel that you are reticent to make yourself known, but now is your chance because we're all waiting. So spirits, can you reach beyond the veil, the whale? No, maybe there's a whale trying to come through. Reach beyond the veil and reach towards Michael Jackson, MJ. Are you there? Can you speak to us? Can you give us a physical sign? Give us a sign. Speak to us. One rap for yes, two for no. MJ, are you here? Oh, wow. Wow. I think that was a yes. I think he's yes, pissed off. Yes, he's here. He sounds a little angry. He's telling me that he is here. He's telling the family now. This is going out to the family. He does not want to be buried under tons of concrete to keep his body from being stolen by grave diggers. Is that true, Michael? Is that the message? Yes. Can you ask him if he's angry at me for predicting his death? (laughs) (laughs) Michael, are you angry for any of the psychics who have predicted your death? Oh, good. Good. feel better. So, spirits, we are on a very tight time element right now. So I bid you to be gone, leave this room, ghostly spirits, ghouls or fiends, nevermore be thou convened, shepherds, ward, and holy right, vanish thee into the night. You may break the psychic circle. Ah. Turn the lights on. Oh. Annie, can you hear me? That's hard for us. Oh, that, was a, that was a thriller. You can see how easy it is. Uh, see you did there. Now, did anyone feel anything? Did anyone see I felt anything? two pinkies. <laughs> there you go. That's I felt three pinkies. Is that weird? That's really weird. <laughs> oh, Rebecca. Well, I could see, you know. That wasn't a pinky. <laughs> it's so cliche. It's obvious. You know, lights go down. Right, you, you you speak in a commanding voice. Yes, you know you, you you create the tone. I mean, if I if you have any kind of true belief about this type of thing, right, you're already in the zone. That's you're right. The, the darkened room, you know, the, the mood changes. Hey, Mark, <laughs> I, I wanted to tell you that you know we at the SGU we've been we've been working on our mentalism skills very well, and uh, mm-hmm. we have achieved something that we think is quite remarkable, and we're about to make a demonstration for you. Okay. 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 <laughs> I have changed the frequency of sound in this room. Don't be afraid. Okay, okay everybody. Say your name. name. 
This is Steve. This is Bob. This is Evan. This is Mark. And this is Rebecca. Rebecca, all I want to hear you say is hot puppets. Hot puppets. Can we pull us out now? Can we out? Can we out? Can we out? Uh, what are we doing? Okay. And we're back. We're back. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> that was tricky. That felt ectoplasm choked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, ectoplasm vibrates at a different frequency than air. Yeah, right? Absolutely. 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 Oh, that's right. I forgot that in chemistry. Obviously. Class. Damn it. Right. There we go. <laughs> oh, man. Well, Mark, thanks for joining yeah, us. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Mark. Thank you. Anytime you, you want to call on me about any subject in this area, I'd be happy to fill you in. That's cool. awesome. Fantastic. Watch and for the skeptologist or something like it. Yeah, good luck with cool. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll say the same to you, Steve. <laughs> yeah. right. okay. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, thanks a lot. Thanks, Mark. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. And then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Everyone ready for this week? Mm-hmm. Yes. Si, senor. And here we go. Item number one. Researchers find that hyenas significantly outperformed chimpanzees in a test of cooperative problem solving. Now, here we go. Item number two. New research finds that Scandinavians are descended from local populations that have lived in the region for at least a million years. And item number three, a new study shows that negative subliminal messages are more effective than positive subliminal messages. Evan, go first. Well, hyenas significantly outperforming chimpanzees in a test of cooperative problem solving. I don't know about that. Significantly outperformed. The next one was the new research about Scandinavians descending from local populations. Wow, a million years is a long time. That one doesn't seem right either. I think two of them are fiction, and let's see what the last one says. Negative subliminal messages are more effective than positive subliminal messages. Well, that's plausible. I mean, that's certainly possible. All three might be fiction. Uh, But that's not the case. All right, I'll say the subliminal messages statement is fiction. Okay, Bob? The chimpanzees and uh, hyenas, yeah, that does seem a bit bizarre. I mean, the cooperative aspect of it, I think, might sway it uh, into believability. If it was uh, just a, a lone hyena being more intelligent than a lone chimpanzee, then I think that would clearly be wrong. But because it's cooperative, I think it's feasible. The subliminal messages, yeah, it seems it seems right to me that a negative message would be more jarring and and have more impact than something that was positive. Uh, so that kind of makes sense as well. The Scandinavians, though, uh, local populations from a million years? No. Uh, it seems way too long. I'm going to say that is fiction. Okay, Jay. Yeah, I'd agree with Bob about the um, the hyenas and the chimpanzees on the point that uh, if it was a single hyena, I wouldn't I wouldn't think it it could uh, could outperform the the chimpanzee. Um, but you know, you see hyenas working together, and I've re- I've read about that a lot and how how complicated their uh, interaction is, especially like the, in the teamwork. I just don't know. I don't, I don't have enough information about that. New research finds that Scandinavians are descended from local populations that have been, that have lived in the region for at least a million years, a million years. Right, Evan? It's a, a long, long time. time. 
Yeah, that that raises a flag. I'm not too comfortable with the million years bit. And the last one, a new study shows that negative subliminal messages are more effective than positive subliminal messages. When we're talking about like what kind of subliminal messages, how are they delivered? Are they you know are they heard or they read subliminally? In general, people are more likely to believe a negative comment about them than a positive one. I don't know. Maybe no. Now that that's flip flopped in my head. Now now that I think about. It. I'll just I'll just say I think number the middle one's the fake about the uh, Scandinavians. So you all agree that researchers find that hyenas significantly outperform chimpanzees in a test of cooperative problem solving is science, and that is in fact science. Interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. Uh, and you're right. I think the the thing that really clinched it was the cooperative problem solving. This was a specific test. I said a test of cooperative problem solving. What they did was they uh, had a platform with two ropes attached to it, and on top of the platform was meat and bone chips, right? It was food. The thing is, you had to pull the two ropes at the same time, and you had to pull on them hard. Researcher Christine Drea from Duke University found that within moments, you know, minutes really, of, of the two hyenas being put into the t- to the test cage, they figured out how to, you know, simultaneously pull on the rope to get the food. And she said her jaw dropped when she just, they, just, they just did it immediately. The chimpanzees took a lot longer, and they had a harder time working together. What she suspects is that, that any cooperative pack-hunting mammal needs to be able to, to work together like this. So they suspected that you know, the pack-hunting hyenas you know, might be good at, at this sort of cooperative problem-solving. But also, she thinks that you know, pulling on the ropes at the same time is a lot like pulling down prey. And in order for hyenas to pull down a bigger prey, they, they need to you know, pull down on it at the same time. So this is a task that they, they might be particularly well-suited to. That's amazing. I mean, to think that they did that in a, a matter of a few minutes? Less than two minutes. Oh, my God. I mean, I don't think that me and a friend would have figured it out <laughs> that fast. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, Jay, you would have been there for it. You would still be there. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'll be starving, too. <laughs> Let's go on to number two. New research finds that Scandinavians are descended from local populations that have lived in the region for at least a million years. Jay and Bob, you think that one is the fake. Evan, you think yeah. that one is real. And that one is Tricky fiction. bastard. No, you yeah. see, I said, I said they were all fiction, so I'm actually yeah, not right. wrong there. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> go back and replay it. You know, this gets to the uh, the two competing hypotheses, you know, out of Africa versus the right. regional hypothesis, the multi-regional hypothesis, in that, you know, there there is some suggestion that there may have been local populations that were stable and that even though there were sort of later waves of more modern humans, like from Africa into Europe, they then would interbred with the local populations and retained the local genetic features. You know, so, you know, Asians were Asians, even if you go back to Java Man, right? If you go back to, to Homo erectus. And Enjoyed his coffee. Maybe, maybe the same was, was true of other, other regions like Scandinavia. But the out-of-Africa hypothesis has definitely been, I think, predominating recently. Yeah. The other piece of information you could bring to bear is, you know, how old is the human species, Homo sapiens? And estimates now are about Homo sapiens split from Homo neanderthalensis about 500,000 years ago, about yeah. half a million years ago in Africa. The news item that inspired this was a study, a genetic study that showed that Scandinavians are in fact descended from 
Stone Age immigrants only from thousands of years ago. Uh, after the development of agriculture, probably something on the order of magnitude of 4,000 or so years ago. So basically Stone Age immigrants, quite the opposite of a million years. Yeah, they have uh, actually quite an amazing uh, homogeneous gene pool, don't they? They're doing some genetic studies on them, and uh, it's an incredible pool to uh, to study. Yeah, which which means the you know the homogeneity, the similarities you know, right. in the genetics it, that implies a recent small founder population. Right. All of this means that a new study shows that negative subliminal messages are more effective than positive subliminal messages. Is in fact. Science. Science. And this one, you know, caught my attention too because you know, I wasn't really convinced that there's any legitimacy to, to subliminal messaging. Uh, it's still a little controversial and it also, I guess, depends on exactly what you're doing. You know, not, not all subliminal messages are created equal. What this study did was they flashed words on a screen for very short fractions of a second. For example, one fiftieth of a second in uh, some cases. And the words were either negative, like agony, despair, murder, positive, like cheerful, flower, and peace, or neutral, like box, ear, or kettle. The question was, does the emotionality of the word affect the participant's ability to uh, respond to what they saw? They didn't ask them to say what the word was. They just said, was the word that was flashed up emotionally positive, negative, or neutral. That was all that they were asked. And they were also asked, well, how certain are you of it? Interestingly, they were able to guess that the words had a negative emotion, emotional implication, more accurately than a neutral or positive one, even when they felt they were guessing randomly, when they didn't feel as if they had seen anything and they had no confidence, essentially, in their answer. They still guessed negative words correctly more often than positive, which is very interesting. This indicates that there may be some, you know, rapid subconscious visual processing. Um, and in fact, this you know, dovetails with some recent other evidence showing that, in fact, there are visual processing pathways that do not necessarily invoke conscious awareness of what we're seeing. The purpose of this is probably to be able to react very quickly to emotional visual stimuli without necessarily having to go through the, the slower, full conscious processing of it so that we could react quickly to certain things. You think that would be more of a survival tactic, like from bodily harm? or? Yeah, I think so, yeah. To see that the pathways, though, might be there, and they are able to function even for things like words. Yeah. Uh, Evan. Doctor. Who's that noisy? Oh, Who? boy. Let's play it again for those who forgot from last week. So what was that sound, Evan? That was the sound of, if you can believe it or not, that is the sound recording of someone breathing who has fluid in their lungs. Yikes. That would have been me for the past two weeks. You'd be, you'd be surprised at how long it took me to find find that on the internet. Oh, you <laughs> looked for internet. that? You actually said, I want to find that sound, and you sought it out? It was one of the biological sounds I was, look, I was actually looking for, and it took me, it took me a while, but, there, but, but I, did, I did eventually find it. Huh. The, the closest person to guessing correctly was Sea Otter, who guessed uh, that it was the sound of breathing through a stethoscope. Hmm. So that, that's... 
close. Close. It wasn't exactly what I was looking for. Well, but it was good. Good guess. So I'm going to give it to Sea Otter because it's within my power to do so. Well, congratulations. Well done, Sea Otter. And now, for the moment you've been waiting for this week, some of you have skipped over the rest of the podcast to get to this very moment, and I shall keep you waiting no longer. Here is this week's Who's That Noisy? That's a perfect example of what he did last night. He sounded smooth and polished and strong and convincing. And what he was selling was snake oil. That is a completely bogus uh, claim. All right. Good noise there, Evan. Yeah, so try to figure out who that is and let us know. And who's he talking about? (laughs) Well. And what did he have for dinner? (laughs) That's the double whammy. Well, Jay, do you have a quote for us? I certainly do, Steve. Uh, this is a quote that is uh, – I tried to, to validate it, and it is accredited to Theodore E. Woodward, but it – Oh, Teddy Woodward. Theodore E. Woodward uh, was actually uh, mostly known for winning a Nobel Prize. This wasn't one of the characters from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? I don't want to remember that. Theodore uh, he, E. something. He, he, right, found, he, he found cures for uh, typhus and typhoid fever, and he was a renowned uh, – University of Maryland in Baltimore, researcher in the fields of medicine. The field of medicine, sorry. And he said, when you hear hoofbeats behind you, don't expect to see a zebra. Theodore Woodward. Now, there's, there's other variations of that quote. When you Theodore hear hoof- Woodward. When you hear hoofbeats, <laughs> think horses, not zebras. Right. And, of course, that was used by... Arthur Conan Doyle. Arthur Conan Doyle. Put, those words were put in the mouth of Sherlock Holmes, who I think might have embellished it a little bit to say, if you hear hoofbeats on the streets of London, think horses, not zebras. And that is a famous quote in the medical profession. In fact, we call rare medical diagnoses zebras after that, that comment. Steve, yeah. it's amazing. I, I, you know, I got this quote from a listener, and I should give that listener credit right now, and I shall. That quote was sent in by Nick... Farantello from Orlando, Florida. Uh, hey, Steve. Yeah. It blows me away that I didn't give you any time, any forewarning about what the quote was going to be, and you jumped on it and have all this amazing information at your fingertips like that. That was virtually zero research on your part. Jay, I'm a physician. That's a famous quote to physicians. Steve's been, taught, he's been using that in his lecture for 12 years. I'm just saying. Just saying. I also took a course in medical school on Sherlock Holmes. Did you? We used uh, the, the stories of Sherlock Holmes as a way of teaching clinical decision-making. You know, we would read a story. We would not get the ending. We would have to figure out the answer. And then uh, we would make an analogy between the kind of logic we had to use this to solve the Sherlock Holmes mystery to a diagnostic question. It was a great course. It was an awesome course. We haven't plugged our other various online activities in a while, so... If you're listening to this show, you might also want to listen to the SGU 5x5, a short format, single topic podcast safe for the classroom and for children. You may want to join the lively discussions of our episodes and other topics in science and skepticism on our forums, uh, which you can again get to from the SGU website. You can read our various blogs, Neurologica, which is my personal blog about neurology, critical thinking, and and general science and skepticism, Science-Based Medicine, which is a group medical blog, The Rogues Gallery, which is the official blog of the SGU, and Skeptic Blog, which is the official blog of the Skeptologists. So thank you for joining me again this week. 
Surely. Oh. Right. I had nothing better to do. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. Problem.